This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Episode 17, recorded on October 10th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lars Wagner. Welcome, Lars. Hi, Tim. Good to see you again. And Lionel Chow. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Tim. Hi, Lars. Great to be here today. Uh, We three are from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and today on TWIPA, we'll be discussing personalized medicine. This is a topic that was requested by a one of our listeners, Jennifer, who's mom to Zach, who wrote in a few weeks ago, and we actually mentioned it on one of our previous episodes, that she wrote she had seen the new melanoma model that a former patient had started in combination with his software company when and if or could we see this in pediatric patients. And she talked about the um, collabrx.com website where they basically type the genetic mutations in individual patients' melanomas and then try to match that with our therapy. So to talk about uh, personalized medicine today, we have a guest joining us via Skype, and that guest is Giselle Scholler. Just to introduce you a little bit to our listeners, you are an associate professor at the Michigan State University College of Medicine and part of the Spectrum Health Medical Group at the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital, and you hold a number of titles there among Them are the director of the Pediatric Oncology Therapeutic Discovery Clinic and the co-director of the Van Andel Research Institute slash TGen Pediatric Oncology Research Program. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And so that sounds like a lot of of responsibilities there. I visited the Van Andel a few years back and gave a talk and was impressed. At the time, they were just building the new children's hospital and talking about moving the College of Medicine for MSU down there to the Grand Rapids campus. Has that all happened? Is everything up and running? Yes, last September, the College of Medicine from MSU um, transferred here to Grand Rapids, and they're right across the street from the Van Andel Research Institute. And then in January of this year, the Children's Hospital opened, and it's up and going, and it's just an incredible um, Children's Hospital to be at. That sounds great. Sounds like a real uh, advance for the children in the state of Michigan and, and beyond. So we're eager to talk to you about about what you're doing there in terms of personalized medicine. And uh, we're having you on the show uh, for a lot of reasons, since you are have experience in this area and have launched some real new innovative programs that have been highlighted in a number of press releases, and particularly in Science Magazine in the September 16th edition, where there's a, a full three pages devoted to your your program there. So congratulations on that, that uh, exposure. One of the things that I know you're doing, and I wanted to, I'm sure you're going to talk about is uh, not just sort of the kinds of things that this website that I mentioned is doing, but also doing uh, some xenograph modeling to look at individual patient-guided treatment. There was a paper that caught our eye that that also did that in molecular cancer therapeutics uh, that was published this year called a pilot clinical study of treatment guided by personalized tumor graphs in patients with advanced cancer where they had 14 patients that they sort of grew the tumors in and then tested different drugs in the mice and seemed to be pretty successful in in picking out uh, therapies that might work on individual patients. But 
and I, I guess we'll get to that, but I first wanted to just briefly take a few minutes to ask you about your past and your sort of where you were trained and, and how you got interested in, in this whole area. Can you tell us where you went to medical school and residency and fellowship? Um, I came down originally from Montreal up in, in Canada and did a little bit of research at McGill um, and doing a master's and then came down to uh, New York Medical College for medical school to the States and then um, from there went to Brown University for my residency um, in pediatrics and fellowship in pediatric oncology. Um, and it was there during my uh, fellowship in, in oncology that I uh, developed a, a niche in neuroblastoma. One of my very first patients um, had a very aggressive form of neuroblastoma um, and who's, the chemo barely touched it. And, and taking care of him and his wonderful family, I really decided to focus on that disease. And then serendipitously, during my um, second year of fellowship, we had a little girl with, again, very similar neuroblastoma, extremely aggressive, you know, not responsive to upfront therapy, who um, ended up having Chagas disease, which is a parasitic disease, um, through her 80 blood transfusions. And when we um, treated her with one of the drugs for Chagas disease, nifurtimox, she started to respond and then eventually went into remission. And so we, um, that's when I went into the laboratory and began looking at drug testing in neuroblastoma and screening different medications. And for that drug, we have, did a phase one and then a phase two clinical trial. And then after finishing my, um, that's kind of started me along the path of drug discovery and early clinical trials in neuroblastoma. And from fellowship, I went up to the University of Vermont um, and was there for the past six years. And over the past three years, I've been collaborating with the Van Engel Research Institute researchers here um, really focusing and understanding genetically why patients with neuroblastoma are so different and respond so differently to therapy. As we started profiling our patients, we saw you know many of our patients cluster together, but many had very different expression profiling. And um, and then when I had the good fortune of meeting a researcher here at the Van Andel, Dr. Craig Webb, who had been developing computer algorithms to screen RNA expression data for um, targeted therapeutics and looking at which drugs might target some of the profiles and pathways that are upregulated in certain patients. And so we had worked together now for the past three years, kind of putting together our current personalized medicine clinical trial and really trying to analyze each patient individual individually. And so that kind of was the, the first step in this arena. And as this trial was coming to fruition over the last year, um, we decided to really merge our two programs into one here at the Van Andel. And um, I'm Really thankful to be here with the leadership of um, Dr. Jeff Trent, who's the, the president and research director here. He was the um, scientific director of the Human Genome Project back at the NIH and then left there and started TGEN, the Translational um, Genomics Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. And so we have the good fortune of working with them as well. And, um, and Dr. Trent is the, the scientific director of both institutes and um, with the advances that they're making in Dan von Hoff in adult personalized medicine, we're able to learn a lot from what the adults are doing, as usual, in pediatrics. Um, and so so that's kind of where we are today. Sounds like a gathering of a lot of great scientists and clinicians and really a nice um, you know, coming together of, of different expertise to, to get this off the ground. I wanted to go back to the Nifertimox story. That's really an amazing story. Um, where, where has that gone since you sort of left it? Or have you left it? Um, you know, we, we're in the middle of a phase two clinical trial right now. So we're doing um, the, we finished our phase one. And then the phase two we opened using, um, after the 
COG phase two of cyclophosphamide into a boutique enclosed, um, we were able to use that as historical database to um, power a phase two clinical trial with the addition of nifertamox to see if we can show an improvement in, in, in that. We have had um, we have three strata on that protocol, first relapse neuroblastoma, multiply relapse, and then also medulloblastoma. We have found in the lab as well that medulloblastoma is, is very sensitive to this drug, and um, it we know that nifertamox crosses the blood-brain barrier very easily, um, and actually our first two medulloblastoma patients have done incredibly well, and we've only had two. It's still early in that in that area, but... Um, it's it's so it's an ongoing in a phase two clinical trial right now. It's um, we're using the Bayer drug. Bayer is providing the drug for free, and it's being um, funded um, partially by solving kids' cancer. Um, and we're kind of moving along. <laughs> so now you know that's sort of a repurposing of, of drugs, which is a hot topic these days in drug development. Mm -hmm. But it's not really a targeted therapy, is it? Or do you know how it works and whether there's any biomarkers that you could use to predict who might respond to it? We we haven't. So we do know that um, essentially we're using the drug for its side effect. The main toxicity for nifertamox you know, when you're treating Chagas disease is neurotoxicity. And there are papers actually in the 80s that show the neurotoxicity of nifertamox is due to reaction with the nifertamox with, semi, with um, catecholamines in neuronal cells. And we know that neuroblastoma have catecholamines. That's what we measure in the urine, the VMA, and the HVA. Um, and that we've shown that that reaction causes oxidative free radicals um, nitroanion free radicals and semiquinone free radicals, and so we're able to show that in the laboratory that it's, it's an oxidative stress response within the cells. Um, but in terms of biomarkers, that's something that has not we have not um, been able to discover yet, and, and something that we are actively looking for and how we can. We are profiling patients going on to the study and trying to understand which patient the ones that respond versus don't respond, and, and what are the genetic differences. And you mentioned the uh, Solving Kids Cancer. Obviously, they sponsor this podcast, so it sounds like they were instrumental in helping get that trial going. Are they also? Yeah. Um, have they also helped in other ways for these some of the other studies you're doing? Um, they helped primarily with the nifertamox. They funded the phase one and now the phase two um, study as well. Although we are in discussions with them about future studies that we'll be doing. How, how did you uh, get connected with them in the first place? Actually, um, John London is one of the founders of Solving Kids Cancer, and um, when I had first presented the um, the preclinical data for the nifertamox at the ANR in um, Los Angeles, uh, it was Dr. Uh, Mr. London and um, another parent, Neil Hutchinson, who called and asked if they would be able to have this available for their children. And as Penelope, which is John's daughter, was the first child to receive the nifertamox. Ah, okay. Uh, can you tell us, uh, for this nifertamox uh, study that's um, ongoing, is this uh, a single-agent study, or is it being used in combination right now? It's used in combination with cyclophosphamide and topotecan. And so we're using the historical kind of database of cyclophosphamide and topotecan in neuroblastoma patients as the baseline historical data, and then we want to see increased effect with the nifertamox. And did you have to do any kind of preclinical studies to look at that combination before launching the trial? Um, we did um, in vitro work. Um, in vivo, we didn't do the full combination, um, but we did the in vitro with a three. Okay. And did you find, since it was a, these are already FDA-approved yeah. drugs, too many, very many hurdles to getting that trial going? Um, no, the FDA was very 
terrific to work with um, in terms of moving the trial forward. We had done in the phase one uh, a lead-in of nifurtamox alone and then combined it with cyclophosphamide topotecan in a phase one setting. So we had the phase one data to uh, move forward. Okay. And let's get back to the more targeted therapy, genetically targeted. Can you tell us about your what you're what you're doing now with that? Um, sure. So we're um, we did a feasibility study last year, and that was the first thing our IRB had required us to do to show that um, what's what's kind of important in in treating kids, especially with neuroblastoma, but all patients, is that the you know the speed with which the disease progresses. We really need in real time to be able to do a biopsy of the patient, you know complete the analysis and have an individualized therapy in a reasonable window of time. Um, just kind of looking at that pilot study, the, the, the xenografts, you know, in, in the study, it says, that, you know, they take six to eight months to have any of those results. Many of our children don't have six to eight months to wait. So what we wanted to do was first show in um, five patients last summer that from the time we do the biopsy and then we run the gene chip, looking at RNA expression profile using the U133 chip, and then running through the computer algorithms that predict, that screens all FDA-approved drugs with pediatric dosing, um, which drugs this patient should respond to based on target expression, pathways, um, biomarker rules, and then we hold a tumor board. And that's one of the things that our, our um, protocol has, has been, I, I think, really instrumental, is that we have 11 sites, and we hold a tumor board, which includes PIs and pediatric oncologists from all our sites, uh, as well as bioinformaticians to help looking at the data, as well as three uh, pharmacists, pediatric oncology pharmacists, to help with putting an individualized treatment plan and looking at drug-drug interactions, and including drugs the patients are already on or natural supplements the patients are already on and the ones that we want to prescribe. Um, and, that, and then we have that, once we come up with an, a treatment plan, that is then reviewed by our medical monitor, um, who is a pediatric oncologist and um, pharmacologist as well for safety. Um, and he needs to sign off on on this, the individual plan for safety. And that all has to be done within two weeks. And now um, in our feasibility of five patients, we were able to do that within 10 to 12 days. And so now we've been able to move forward um, with the study we put through the FDA, um, both for IDE and IND. Um, so it's gone through the FDA under two different reviews, IDE looking for um, this as an investigational device. And they've um, they define the device as the gene chip and the computer algorithms together. And then the IND, which is for drugs, um, because they're all FDA approved drugs with pediatric dose, and we were able to get IND, IND exemption. Um, and so this is one of the first personalized medicine clinical trials with FDA approval. Um, and then it's then gone through the IRB, um, Western IRB, and then our five, five of our clinical sites are open. Um, so it's got an extensive review. Um, and now we've actually treated two patients on the clinical trial. Um, and uh, yeah, do you have any specific questions well, about that, I mean, That's what, really, what? really an amazing uh, accomplishment, I think, just to sort of get this through and, and get higher, you know, FDA approval. And congratulations on that because we all know how hard it is to <laughs> get trials approved. <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> but uh, so that's that's trivia, and I'm amazed at how quickly you're able to. So the two weeks is that from the biopsy to the to the answer is that two weeks from yeah, two weeks from biopsy to treatment being presented to the patients. Wow, so, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. Giselle, did you have any patients where you could get tumor cells from the bone marrow and not have to do a, a tissue biopsy? So right now we are both actually both patients that have gone on study did have tumor within the bone marrow. 
we are looking at those cells, but we're not basing the decisions in this trial. This is only a 14-patient trial, so we are isolating the tumor from the uh, the bone marrow, sorry, that yeah, from an actual soft tissue tumor. It's a needle biopsy that we need. We just need a kind of an 18-gauge needle biopsy from the actual tumor. And then we are doing bone marrow samples as well. If the bone marrow is greater than 75%, the bioinformaticians tell us that we can use that as a tumor biopsy. Um, we don't know that before we're doing it. So we are, we're doing both biopsies. We're also flowing out the neuroblastoma cells from the patient's bone marrow um, and running the U133 gene chip in parallel to the actual tumor. And one of the questions that, that this study is looking at kind of as, as a side research question is, is the bone marrow neuroblastoma cells, do they have the same expression profile as the actual solid tumor? They're in a different location. They're mostly single cells versus, you know, their environment is very different. And so their expression profile may be different. That may tell us that we need to use different therapies to treat bone marrow versus treating solid tumor. Or if they're the same, then that'll tell us in future trials we could just go ahead and use the bone marrow and not have to do a biopsy. But it's a research question in the study, and we're not basing our decisions solely on the bone marrow right now. And can you just uh, tell our listeners um, uh, how how big is this, this uh, uh, library of compounds that you're dealing with, and uh, how many different compounds are you uh, treating your patients with? Sure. We the the library is right now three hundred uh, medications. We're um, looking at about one hundred and sixty right now that that we feel confident using with our patients. And the treatment plan. Um, and these are not all chemotherapeutic. And I think that's an important thing to to let everyone know too. Some of these have are um, targeted therapies or therapies that could be kind of cholesterol agents or diabetes agents or anti-seizure medications, they're just, they're agents that have a target that our patient's tumor may have. Um, so they're not necessarily all chemotherapeutics. And so we are able to, allow, um, for our FDA approval, allow to combine up to four different medications together. Um, our goal is low toxicity, safe therapies for these patients um, primarily. And so generally we haven't used more than one or two chemotherapeutics with a targeted agent so far. And, and obviously this is early days, but have you come across any... Um... Uh, unexpected side effects uh, based on these combinations of, of these agents that perhaps have never been used together before? Right. So in the two patients we've treated, we've not had actually any side effects um, that were unanticipated within, you know, counts or nausea. <laughs> but, um, no, but it's only, you know, an N of two, so yeah. it's still very early. Um, are these, these are all relapse patients, correct? Yes, they're multiply relapsed. And so in normal, the normal course of events wouldn't always include a biopsy. So that biopsy is being done, I guess, I would have normally thought as part of research, uh, although in this case it's almost part of therapy as well, right, because it's dictating right. therapy. So it, it, any... and, and some patients today are having biopsies done looking for ALK status and other. <laughs> so um, especially now that there is, you know, with the ALK trial. Um, so, but you're right, this is not kind of a normal standard of care. Right. So did you have any problems getting that biopsy through the regulatory committees? I guess we did it's not, sort of given, given the... Um, how important it is for your study. Yeah, given the, the point in the therapy which these patients are and their um, need for better understanding, um, given the outcome. Yeah, it's just I know we've run into problems in the past with um, proposing biopsies for research only since since research in children has to have some, you know, more than minimal risk has to have some 
element of benefit, but in this case, it's directing what your uh, next <coughs> step is going to be in their therapy, although it's right. still investigational therapy. So I guess that makes it more compelling to allow it. Just yeah, and I think as, as research goes forward, I know having, I spent a year at the NCI last year doing a sabbatical, and there was a lot of discussion there, and, and talking about, you know, these are needle biopsies. It's really not much more invasive than a bone marrow, and we can learn a great deal from this, especially as children relapse or patients relapse, and their tumors change and, and you know, mutations occur, and, um, and, and whether this actually is important for us to be doing to better understand and, you know, I agree. You know, looking at the risk versus not risk. But um, and do the pathologists look at the needle biopsy before they send it to the to the gene chip they do. or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So they it used to be greater than seventy five percent viable tumor okay. without necrosis or or normal cells. Okay. Giselle, can you talk about the um, the actual testing that's done on the tumor tissue? Are you looking at RNA expression, protein mutations? What what exactly are you looking at? So right now we're looking at RNA expression profile using the 133 gene chip. We are also at the NCI, they're doing, they have been doing um, D next gen sequencing with the DNA. David, Dr. David Khan has been doing the exomes and now he's going to transfer over to doing full, full genome um, sequencing with the DNA. We're also um, running the cells in culture, growing the cells in culture and doing xenografts of each of the patients to, to further test and uh, I think the xenograph, you know, we really need, this needs to be validated. And while there are a lot of, um, kind of personalized medicine services available, you know, online and, and you can, you know, send your tumor, nothing, none of them have been FDA approved or validated. And that's one thing that we really want to be able to um, kind of validate our results, really look back at the algorithms that we're using, which ones are better, which ones are not, you know, predicting as well. And ho we're hoping that our xenografts can help us to do that, um, you know, being able to test in the mice the um, top drugs as well as the, you know, using biomarker rules, we pull out resistant drugs um, and really see uh, if they're predictive, if, if the mice models are validating it. And as well, we're going to be looking at the mutation analysis um, with uh, Javed Khan and um, down at TGen, they're doing the RNA sequencing for us. And this is something that we're hoping to bring forward in our clinical trial next year. We just had a meeting two weeks ago at TGen, and it looks like by next summer we may be able to do the RNA sequencing data within the two weeks. The DNA still takes longer and still takes closer to two months, um, but they currently have a triple negative breast cancer protocol where they're putting patients on study, treating them with a cycle of standard of care therapy while they do the DNA sequencing analysis, and then two months later, reconvene a tumor board and um, looking at mutations, predict therapies for the triple negative breast cancer patients. So um, I think that I think the sequencing and the mutation analysis is very important and we need to find a way to be able to bring it in and with the advances it's it, it's getting faster and faster. But at present the treatment decisions are based on the RNA expression and then the xenografts are kind of done on the side, but you're not using that information right now to treat the patients you're you're basing your treatment decisions on the RNA uh, uh, analysis. Is that correct? That's correct. We're using the RNA expression profile and the computer um, algorithms. We have um, multiple algorithms that look at either based on the expression profile, whether a uh, target, like the EGF receptor, if a receptor is present on the cell, and then using GeneGo and connectivity maps, looking at the pathways downstream of that target. Is just the target present or is the entire pathway 
upregulated and active as well, and other then small molecule inhibitors that can work downstream. We're also looking, another um, algorithm looks at the NCI um, 60 drug screen, and although those where the NCI looked at 60 different tumors and treated, and that's primarily where the chemotherapeutics come in and looked at signatures for, um, looked at signatures for drugs that were sensitive or uh, tumors that were sensitive or resistant to that particular chemotherapeutic, and then our patients, um, and then created signatures for, say, cyclophosphamide, um, and then our patients' RNA signature is mapped against those to predict the chemotherapeutics. And then the, the Broad at MIT looked at the connectivity map to look at how drugs changed um, expression profiles to more benign profiles. Um, so there's multiple different algorithms. And then the ones, drugs that are predicted by multiple, if it's predicted by the NCI screen as well as the target, and potentially a biomarker rule algorithm, and that gets pulled up higher onto the, um, on the report. Yeah. So, so Giselle, uh, for any of us, for any of uh, the people out there, or any people, for example, myself, who've worked with uh, um, uh, genome-wide data, uh, you know, whether it's uh, DNA or RNA uh, expression data, uh, we all know that um, the bioinformatics is the piece that takes the longest. Uh, you know, getting getting the chip done and getting the the um, uh, array, the the raw data out uh, is is can, is very quick, uh, depending on on your core service. But getting this analyzed is what takes a long time. What kind of um, infrastructure have you guys built up in order to get this uh, r run the data through the algorithm in such a, a rapid uh, fashion? Um, so the algorithms were developed by Dr. Craig Webb here at the, at the Van Andel Institute, and he's collaborated with Intervention Insights, which is um, a company that's helping to bring this forward, and and they are really running the algorithms for us through their um, platform and pr providing us with the um, report. Um, and that is done within 24 hours from the time the gene chip data arrives at Intervention Insights. We um, have the report within 24 hours. Yeah, that's amazing. It's great. Yeah. Uh, how much does all this cost? And maybe, maybe people are donating their time right now as part of the study, but if, yeah. <laughs> if they are, can you sort of project how much this will cost when they start billing you. <laughs> so right now, yes, this is being, the Intervention Insights is, is donating their time. The NCI is donating all their time. Um, the um, CLIA certified lab where we're running the um, gene chips are is all donated as well. Um, we have uh, a great group of people that are committed to this project to help it get off, off the ground. Um, it is being, the the funding that we have has come from the parent foundations that are supporting this clinical trial, and um, there's quite a few of those, <laughs> and they've, they've been really terrific. It's just the Envy Alliance, the Friends of Will, Max's Ring of Fire, the Owen Moscone Foundation, and the Whitmer Foundation out of New York City, too. Um, Lily's Friends and the Ishangala Foundation have all donated to help make this possible and primarily covering you know, the clinical costs, the IRB fees, for patient fees, um, and getting that going. That's that's great. That's um, do you, but right now, you probably haven't cost out an estimate for because it'll change over time. Obviously, these. But it sounds like the person time will be the most expensive in terms of interpreting all of these data. Right. It's a, yeah. It's the the whole clinical team, the the tumor board consortium that helps make this decision and helps kind of evaluate and reevaluate and then in time, the validation of these algorithms as we look 
towards the mutation analysis and, and the xenografts and, and kind of go back to what we predicted and what we're predicted with the RNA expression profile. I, ideally, what we'd like to see in our next clinical trial is in that two-week period, we have the RNA expression, but we also have the RNA sequencing and mutation analysis. And I think that's going to help us make even better decisions um, going forward. The mutation analysis is going to be really important. How hard have the decisions been so far? How many different choices do you have in any given patient sample? Um, in any patient sample, we have about 20 different choices. We've stayed wow. within the top 10, though. Um, of, of the drugs, and they have been some drugs that we would have predicted and some we wouldn't, and so kind of really um, combining, you know, a, a known a drug that we really think should be effective in neuroblastoma and then an unknown that really looks like a good target for this patient um, has been where we've kind of tried to go. And is it, do the algorithms sort of come out with a pretty obvious answer for these 10, or are they all kind of wishy-washy, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no? Um, how, how some are more obvious than others. <laughs> Definitely. Some are genes that were just not quite, you know, targets to genes that we're not quite sure if that gene is really important in driving the cancer. And that's where a lot of our discussion ends up as to, you know, while it may target this gene and this pathway, is that gene and pathway really important in driving this cancer growth or is it just a pathway that's that's active but not necessarily um, going to cause cell death if we inhibit it? Back to the cost, you know, I think one of the most expensive pieces that, that you've described actually would be the xenograft studies. No, mm -hmm. we do a lot of those, and they're not cheap. And um, Have you actually launched those yet, and do you anticipate having a sort of team of people implanting these tumors, and do you know how many mice, how many mice per tumor type and per drug treatment, and, and uh, you know, is there is there mice data available? Are there mice data available for all the different drugs that that you have so that you know what doses to use and timing and intervals and that sort of thing? Most, for the chemotherapeutics there are, it's for some of the others, um, some of the psych psychiatric drugs and things that we don't have um, necessarily the dosing. And then we'll be needing to do um, dose responses in standard mice prior to doing it. But we are right now, it's only 14 patients, so each patient is injected into a mouse, um, and then that mouse tumor um, is harvested and split into five mice, then they are allowed to grow, and then we um, split those into different experiments. And generally we'll be doing about five mice per group with a control group and then a drug, and then potentially, depending on what combinations we will be doing, it'll be up to you know four different groups, control, two single agents, and a combination. So the tumor tissue goes straight into the mice. It doesn't get grown as a cell line first or anything like that. Is that right. correct? Okay. It also gets grown in the cell line, but it, a two-millimeter piece of tumor goes directly into a mouse. You know, the, the genetic piece of your program sounds a lot like the target program at the NCI. How We, we uh, talked about the target program for other listeners in, in episode 12, uh, mainly yeah. with respect to some of their publications with leukemia, but they've branched out now into a lot of different solid tumors. How... Are you guys able to utilize the data because that's publicly available from that program as well as part of this, or is that totally separate? It's Well, Dr. Doug Khan, the NCI, is part of the target program, so he's been looking at that um, and comparing some things. You know, it's primarily a you know, program that's screening agents and profiling many, many, many cancers. <laughs> and um, so a lot of information is going to come from that protocol, that program, and hopefully, you know, identifying new agents and... and 
um, for some of our diseases. But it's not directly a clinical program at this time, as I understand. Right. So, so you wouldn't be able to take your patient samples and have it analyzed by that program. You're already basically doing that. Right. Essentially, well, David Khan is doing a lot of the samples. So he's doing ours and theirs. So he and he puts um, all his expression profile data on a publicly available oncogenomics website. So they're all going to be publicly available. Okay. And what about? Are you aware of other people that are have launched personalized medicine kinds of programs? Are there any others um, for pediatric cancers? And there are other. Um, like the Caris now or Uncle Carter, like Charles Keller is doing at OHSU. So there are other um, venues that you can have your patient analyzed, your tumor analyzed for certain mutations. Um, but I don't know of any other clinical trials that are looking then to validate that. Those are all non-FDA approved tests that are available to be done. Um, and and that there you know, is data that can come out of it and your oncologist could potentially make some inferences from that, um, but I don't know of any current clinical trials that are testing right, like we're doing. Yeah, you're really pushing the envelope by the cutting edge. It's really great. So can I ask you, uh, I mean, I know that you spoke at the beginning uh, about your interest in neoblastoma. That's what you're focused in now. Um, as, as this trial sort of uh, uh, goes forward, uh, where do you sort of anticipate the next trial to go? Are you going to stay with neoblastoma? Are you going to branch into a different uh, disease type, or are you going to move it into an upfront type of uh, scenario? Uh, where, where do you think this is all leading? Yeah, I don't think it's ready for upfront at all. <laughs> but um, in terms of, we want to get deeper in sequencing, and I think so. I am going to stay with neuroblastoma and go deeper into the sequencing and see if we can really, you know, incorporate the RNA and then incorporate the DNA and really fully understand and then do the validation. As part of our consortium, there are other, and I know Dr. Khan wants to spearhead this sarcoma um, kind of parallel protocol, you know, this is a protocol that really you could take out neuroblastoma and put any other childhood cancer or in, in into, um, you know, neuroblastoma is where my heart lies, but I'm definitely happy to kind of share and talk to any others that want to look at this type of analysis in other pediatric cancers, because um, I think that it can cross fields. If one of our listeners either has a patient or is a patient or family that wants to know more about this, where should they go? Uh, is there a preferred yeah. website? Yeah, we have the our nmtrc.com um, website, <laughs> or .org. <laughs> and um, we, um, yeah, they can either, you know, call at the Van Andel. Um, they can email me or Genevieve, our program manager. Um, do you, I can send you those links if you'd like. Sure. Uh, if you want us, we can put them in the show notes posted online where we have these podcasts. Um, and can you name the different institutions that are part of it just so people that might be listening around the country could hear if there's a, a, a participating institution near them? You have sure. That the, um, it's open here at the Helen DeVos Children's Hospital, and that's where I have my Innovative, innovative Therapeutics Clinic. Um, it's also open at the NCI, and Dr. Merchant and Dr. Khan are the two um, oncologists there that are um, seeing patients. It's open at uh, Cardinal Glenn Children's Medical Center in St. Louis with Dr. Ferguson. Um, it's open at MD Anderson in Orlando with Dr. Don Eslin. And it's open at Levine Children's Hospital in North Carolina uh, with Dr. Kaplan there. It will be opening um, at 
a couple of other centers shortly. Um, but we're really, those, those are the five centers that are currently enrolling right now. Okay. You guys have any other questions? No, I think this is a really uh, innovative program, and you know, certainly we wish you all, all the best of luck with it. This is the direction that a lot of us are wanting to head in. So, yeah, and I guess we need to emphasize though, for our listeners, it's still research. We yeah, don't know absolutely. if this approach really is going to pan out. Um, it sounds very attractive. You're matching, you know, biology with with therapeutics, and in many ways, this is opening up drugs that you'd not otherwise think about using that may have efficacy. And it sounds like you're sticking with those that are already proven to be safe. So the only safety question really is going to be what they do in combination. And that jury may still be out. And the only way to answer that is to, to try them, I guess. Uh, but, but it is still research. So whether these predictions from these algorithms, whether they're correct or not, and whether they'll result in, in, you know, tumor shrinkages or, or even cures is, is unknown. Is that, would you agree with that assessment, Giselle? I, I- Absolutely agree. This is a first step in, in this arena. I think if we don't take a step, we won't know. I think uh, we need to start to look and, and to ask these questions, but this is a research question, and we're hoping to um, learn from this and be able to move forward in taking the next steps. But I absolutely agree with your, your comments. Great. Well, thanks for being on the show. I think I think that'll wrap it up. So to any of our listeners, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org, or feel free to post a question or comment on the iTunes site on our podcast site. You can also follow us at Twitter, uh, at TWIPO Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks again to Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, to Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week's Pediatric Oncology.